All right, let us pray. Gracious God, as we come to consider your word, we pray that you might bless us, that you might teach us. We thank you for it. And we just ask for your presence and your leading. Uh, your spirit is here, and your spirit ordains to speak like in no other situation when your word is proclaimed. And we ask that now, giving you thanks, because we need you. And we confess that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good afternoon, everybody. Once again, we are in the middle of a series uh, on the Isaiah passages. And you have um, a handout that we read from, and you also have um, a summary. And I will be referring to each um, by and by. We have all heard of the story of the light at the end of the channel. Um, and um, I don't know when it was that somebody decided to make a joke about the light at the end of the tunnel. You know, the light at the end of the tunnel is supposed to normally be a sign of kind of hope, right? It's supposed to be daylight. But lo and behold, uh, sometimes the light at the end of the tunnel, as the joke goes, is what? An oncoming train, right? So there you are in the tunnel, and the light is ahead, and there are two possibilities um, as the ballad goes. One is uh, the daylight, which is a good thing. Nobody likes being in a tunnel for very long. Uh, but, oh my gosh, that light could be a tunnel. Uh, that, that light could be a train coming. And when that train comes, it is usually kind of disaster because there's not room for you and the train uh, in the tunnel at the same time. Well, in a way, that kind of summarizes the book of Isaiah. For the first 39 chapters, the Isaiah, who lived in the 8th century B.C., was commissioned to preach a message about Judah being in a tunnel. God had decided that her sins had mounted up to the point where judgment was the only alternative. And so this uh, talented young poet and preacher named Isaiah, at his ordination, as it were, which took place in the heavenly council chamber, was commissioned to a ministry that involved preaching to people with super hard hearts. Nothing was going to change. The die was cast. And it was as though the train was coming down the tunnel. But as we saw last week, the tone changes in the book of Isaiah after chapter 40 when we realize that the light at the end of the tunnel, after judgment has come, is also daylight. And so we notice that there were two themes that resonate through the book of Isaiah. We saw them last week, and we're going to see them again, and I just want to draw your attention to the one hand, uh, to the one page outline, which is um, as much a summary of what I want to say as an outline of my message. Summary of the message based on Emmanuel and Isaiah 7 and 8. Two themes that resonate throughout Scripture. Number one, God's righteous judgment of sin results in agonizing removal from his presence. Exile. God's righteous judgment of sin results in agonizing removal from his presence. Those of you who know and love the Lord Jesus will think back perhaps to a time in your own life when you didn't know him. And when you felt trapped by your sin, you felt in this endless cycle of just repeating behaviors and being hopeless. And it was as though you were away from God and actually were and were in kind of agony, perhaps without even knowing it. But the second theme comes by way of this. 
And we saw it in Isaiah chapter 40, and today we're going to see both of these themes just interwoven together when we look at Isaiah 7 and 8. God's gracious redemption of sin results in joyous, comforting return. Uh, a catchword for this would be homecoming. A catchword for the first would be exile. And so last week we saw a prophecy of Isaiah in which um, he was told to announce that the people's time away from their country, living in Babylon, was over. And Isaiah, for the first time, was able to speak words of enduring comfort, saying, it's okay, God is going to bring you home. And that, of course, is a picture of the various ways in which God has come throughout time. Uh, he came uh, to the exiles in that period of time, but it also reminds us of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's just a little bit by way of review. Today we come to Isaiah chapter 7, and I want to talk about the famous virgin passage. Uh, it came up quite far down in our passage. Um, Behold, the virgin will conceive. It's at the top of page 2, verse 14. And give birth to a son, and she will call him Emmanuel. You probably weren't uh, eight or nine or 10 or 12 if you grew up in the church before you realized, golly, that, that passage comes in the midst of a context that doesn't sound like Jesus. I mean, this part sounds like Jesus, but before there's the story of a war and some kind of a conflict, and after that you've got a child who's reaching a certain age of discernment. And so what I'd like to do today is I would like us to look at Isaiah chapter seven in context to really point to the message of the story of the birth of this virginal uh, child. And we're going to look at it in context because uh, there are lots of people out there who keep close tabs on what we say and they accuse us of taking Bible passages out of context. About a year ago, uh, my first year into being your rector, I ordered um, some Christian literature from uh, a company and they were the kinds of literature that we put on the sidewalk on Sunday. And one of them I read, and I just couldn't put it out, because it, it said that there were over like 400 prophecies of Jesus in the Old Testament. And when you look at them, they seem inevitably like proof texts. And you sort of say, well, anybody can sort of predict somebody if you take a, a passage out of, out of context. And so I couldn't in good conscience uh, post that little piece of literature, not because I don't believe that the Old Testament points to Jesus, but because I believe that we take shortcuts. And we sometimes do it without looking at the context. So I want us to look at Isaiah chapter 7 uh, this afternoon for a few minutes and then also move into Isaiah chapter 8 because we're going to see that the child born of the virgin uh, was both somebody who was born in Isaiah's time as well as uh, the son of the virgin Mary. And if you're thinking, wait a minute, how can somebody be born of a virgin? It goes like this. In the case of Isaiah who lived in the 8th century, the prophecy was about a young woman who was not yet married. And the prophecy was, this young woman who is not yet married is going to get married and have a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel. So she was a virgin at the time the prophecy was given. And of course we know uh, in the time of the Lord Jesus that that prophecy was fulfilled uh, miraculously in the way that it's kind of intimated in chapter 7. And of course Jesus was born of a virgin who was a virgin at the time of conception. 
So let's take a look at Isaiah chapter 7, and as we do so, we'll not only learn a little bit more about the story of the prophecy of the virgin birth, but we'll also have some applications for our lives. And if you're wondering what the application is, I have it underlined in verse 9. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Don't go into the tunnel regardless of whether what may come at the end, a train or daylight, without faith. Because if you go in there without faith, you'll encounter a train rather than daylight. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. The story begins by talking about um, a conflict that took place around 833 BC. Uh, there's King Ahaz, who is the uh, son of David. He's living in what is now the southern part of the kingdom of Israel. Um, a century or more before the kingdom had split, you remember there's the northern kingdom of Israel, uh, which is also called Ephraim, and now there's the southern kingdom, and generally the southern kingdom is the more righteous. So here you have good old Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah. He's king of Judah, and he is aware, like his neighbor Israel to the north, and like another, Israel, like another neighbor to the north, the king of Syria, that uh, there's a new guy in town, uh, in the country, and his name is um, Tiglath-Pileser III, and he is from Assyria, and he's a monster. He is coming to conquer land after land after land. So these three kings, uh, the king of Judah, uh, the king of Israel, rather, and the king of Syria say, you know what? If we got together, I'll bet you we could fight this guy. And so they come to the king of Judah, Ahaz, and say, are you going to join a coalition against Assyria and fight with us? And Ahaz is now caught in a dilemma. Do I join this coalition or do I trust in the Lord? You know, there's something about hard times <laughs> that brings us focus in our faith. I mean, as I was preparing this week and I put myself in the position of uh, Ahaz, I sort of thought, you know, I wonder if I would have had the courage knowing that, uh, you know, say, um, you know, uh, some country with a uh, with nuclear weapons was making its way quickly towards us and you had a decision between you know whether to trust in God or whether to sort of get into a political alliance what, what would I do uh, what do uh, Christians living in uh, the south of Gaza do when uh, their country is being inundated your faith becomes very focused at a point like that and anyway Ahaz's faith was focused and to make a long story short he flunked the test um, he didn't rely upon the Lord, even though God gave him a message. So uh, this is what verse 1 is about. Ahaz, the son of Jotham, uh, was king of Judah and the king of Aram. And um, Pekah, son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem uh, because when uh, Ahaz refused to join the coalition, they said, we are going to get you back. We wanted you to join us, but now that you refused, we're coming to get you. And so now Ahaz has a double problem, Assyria on the far horizon and these two neighboring countries whom he has alienated on the near horizon. Things are looking rough. It says in verse 2, it doesn't call him Ahaz, but it says in verse 2, Now the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. Now, if you remember what we learned even in the series on the Psalms, the house of David was promised that it would be able to conquer. 
and it would prevail against his enemies. So Isaiah, when he's saying in verse two, now the house of David was told, a couple of guys are coming to get you. Well, Ahaz should have said, I have the promise of God. It was given to my ancestor David. It's given to me. But instead it says, so the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. This is the backdrop to the Isaiah prophecy of Jesus and Emmanuel. By contrast with Jesus and by contrast with the ideal son who was to be born, these Israelite kings just don't match up. They aren't fulfilling the ideology of the David who was uh, blessed by God and who was promised victory. So God gives him a little help. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, go and take your son. A remnant will return. Isaiah the prophet's son has a, has a, uh, uh, a sign name. A remnant will return. That's kind of, there's daylight at the end of the tunnel imagery. To meet him and to say to him, uh, don't lose your cool. Uh, it won't be long before these two guys, neighboring countries that are about to come and get you, are just vamoose, uh, completely gone. And so then Isaiah gives a prophecy, and it's in, uh, indented on pages uh, in verses uh, 7 to 9. It will not take place. It will not happen. Why? Because the capital of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is a human being. In fact, within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim, that is Israel, is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is not God, it is only a king. And then comes the message, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Well, now the Lord speaks directly to Ahaz, so it would seem. This is incredibly special. It seems not to be mediated by the prophet Isaiah. The Lord comes directly to Ahaz, and says, ask me, God, your God, for a sign, whether it be, you know, a little, whether it be way down there or way up there, whatever you want, I will, I will provide you with a sign. Now Ahaz decides to be faithful, when he, when, he, when he doesn't need to be, and he says piously, I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test, this guy who is capitulating before his enemies and is faltering in his faith, and then Isaiah says, here now, Ironically, you, house of David, don't you remember who you should be? Is it enough for you to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? At this point, Isaiah's responding, and now comes the sign. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Now we come to the prophecy about the virgin. And when you think about it, you're expecting something quite spectacular, right? Um, something earth-shattering. But in the, it says, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and she will call him Emmanuel. Now at this point, your focus is split. You're expecting something dramatic. You're expecting maybe even a virginal birth. But if, if that were the only message to Ahaz, it wouldn't have meant much, because Jesus was born 800 years after Ahaz. So here the Lord in his prophecy is splitting the difference. He's giving a message of double entendre. And he's saying, a woman who is of marriageable age will conceive and give birth to a son in your time, Isaiah, and she will call him Emmanuel. And then it goes on to say that before he reaches a certain stage, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. The Lord will bring on you and upon your people and upon the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. So in this passage, 
Um, the promised child is called Emmanuel. And at this point, uh, we could ask some questions about who this son is. It turns out to be the case that it's most likely that the son that was born to this unmarried woman who got married and who had a child was probably a royal prince in the line of King David. And this royal prince signified for the people of that time that God was with them. Okay, well at this point, let's let the skeptic step in and say, well there you are, you've got your prophecy. This isn't about some virgin birth in the future. Uh, this is about um, a son of a royal house who was actually born at the time. I mean, read the text. My friends, this is why we need to look at the passage in the broader context. Because as I pointed out with Isaiah chapter 7, there's a lot of mystery with who Isaiah the, uh, the child is. But by the time we get to chapter 8, this figure is taking on wings and is much more significant and much more supernatural than any simple human son of David could be. And next week, by the time we come to Isaiah chapter 9 and Isaiah chapter 11, we realize that we are looking at a supernatural divine king who can be none other than Jesus Christ. There's simply nobody else who fits the bill. So this is, as it were, and our Orthodox friends would be probably righteously offended by this, kind of an icon of, of Jesus, right? Um, never mind the paper towel, it should be dressed in gold if that's the case. So when we come to chapter 8, we see the broader context of Emmanuel. In Isaiah chapter 8, after the Mahar Shalal Hashbaz uh, prophecy, which again predicts that these two enemies of Judah are going to be destroyed in no time, we read again in Isaiah chapter 5, the Lord spoke to me again, said Isaiah, because this people has rejected the gently flowing waters of Shiloh. This is a stream near the Zion, the, the Gihon Spring, um, made Zion habitable from ages past, and it's a gently flowing little river. And Ahaz is saying figuratively, because you didn't trust in the subtle pure waters of the God of Zion, who flows gently in your midst, I'm going to bring Assyria, the Euphrates River, crashing at your door, and it's going to blow you away. So here at this point we see that um, both judgment and redemption are coming at the same time. Redemption comes for the faithful uh, by way of these two foreign enemies being destroyed. But judgment comes, the train at the end of the tunnel, by the way, is coming in the form of God's judgment upon his people in the person of Assyria. Returning to the question who this child is, look at verse 8. It says that it will sweep on into Judah, that is the Euphrates River, namely the king of Assyria, swirling over it, passing through it, and reaching up to the neck. And its outspread wings will cover the breadth of your land. O Emmanuel! O Emmanuel! Well, take note. This fellow Emmanuel is no ordinary little child no insecure, ins insignificant little person, but he is identified uh, with uh, the nation of Judah itself. And this figure is taking on wings, as it were, and becoming larger than life. And it continues in verse 9 to talk about how the um, uh, foreign nations will be shattered by Assyria. Raise the war cry, you nations, and be shattered. Listen, all you distant lands. Prepare for battle and be shattered. Devise your strategy. It's going to be thwarted. Propose your plan, but it will not stand because 
of Emmanuel, God with us. My friends, whether you were living in the 8th century, like Ahaz was and the people of Judah, or whether you're living in the wake of the birth and ministry of Jesus Christ, God with us means one of two things. It can mean either comfort that brings you home, that brings you to a loving God who wants to take you in his arms and to put you on his shoulders like a lamb and just to shepherd you and to care for you. Or it can also mean judgment. You see, the reality is, in our culture, we think that the good news is that there is no sin. <laughs> Everybody's okay. You're okay, you do your own thing, I do my thing, and I'm okay. And you know, we just don't worry about things. But in a time when you see what's happening in Gaza and in the Donbass and in Ukraine and in Russia, you realize, no, something's terribly wrong. And it would be wrong of God to overlook that sin. And so God has said, I will judge sin because I'm righteous. But being the genius and loving God that I am, I'm going to find a way also to spare you of sin by putting the judgment of God upon my son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. And he will redeem sin so that you can have a homecoming. So my friends, this is a glorious passage about uh, a fulfillment that took place in a small way, in a significant way, in Isaiah's day. But it also took place much more profoundly as we'll continue to see as we get to chapters 9 and 11 where there's no mistaking that this person is a divine king uh, who brings salvation to the world. And if we read on in Isaiah to chapters 50 to 52, we'll also learn that he's the one who takes the sin of the world upon himself. A couple of lessons as we close. I've mentioned one already. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. If we had time to do a little interview here in the congregation, I'm sure that each of you could share a time when you face some kind of a crisis, when, if you're a Christian, your faith has made an enormous difference. I don't know how I would have gotten through that if it weren't for my faith. Faith is what pleases God. Faith is at the foundation of Christianity. And so, to use the analogy with which I began, do not go into the tunnel without faith. Looking at that word faith a little bit, it's articulated in chapter 7 here in terms of the root meaning of the word. And the word for faith is uh, the same word that's used of a pillar that holds up a building. Uh, a pillar is called an amuna. Can you hear the word amen in there? Amuna. And when you put faith in someone, you declare them to be dependable. You learn the lesson that we learned last week, that the word of God endures forever. I'm going to trust in God because he's dependable. I'm going to rely upon his word because it's dependable. And come what may, I'm going to be anchored in this reliance upon God, clinging to him like a barnacle clings to the post that holds up a dock. Do you have faith? That faith can be yours today if you simply put your trust in Jesus. If you allow yourselves to be picked up into the arms of the shepherd, and to let his work on the cross which paid the penalty for your sin to be appropriated to you by simply putting your faith in Jesus. That involves confessing your sin, uh, not hiding it, and simply saying, Lord, I'm a mess. Sin has wreaked havoc in my life. I can feel that I'm far away from you. I want to have a homecoming, and I want to find my homecoming by coming to you and by putting my faith in you. Faith is not so much about you and your fickleness and mine as it is in the dependability of God. 
And here we find that in the midst of the tunnel, whether what's coming is daylight or whether what's coming is a train, faith is the important thing. And if you have faith, even if it's a train, there will be some way in which God will bring good out of it and in some way in which you will be able to look back and say, you know what, that was rough, but I saw the presence of God. That's what Isaiah saw through the destruction of the people, through their exile into Babylon. After the judgment of sin, and exile comes the comfort of God, the payment of sin, and homecoming. Let me conclude with an illustration of another variation on the tunnel that I heard this week at a scholars meeting. I belong to what my wife calls an old boys club, and uh, such it is of these um, scholars of uh, the Mediterranean and West Asian, and uh, we were hearing a paper on Tuesday night, and the Egyptologist said, do you know what? She said, in Egypt, uh, there's a story of a guy who was going through the tunnel of the underworld. And it used to be thought, in Egyptian thought, that there, the way that the sun got from the uh, west, where it set, to the east, where it rose, was through a tunnel that went underneath the world. And she told the story of a god who was uh, making his way westward through the tunnel, and the light at the end of the tunnel was not a train, it wasn't daylight, but it was the sun itself blazing in fury. And he was terrified because the light was something as powerful as the sun. Wait until next week, and when we come to chapters 9 and chapter 11, we'll find that the daylight at the end of the tunnel is the blazing sun of the glorious Son of God, who is Lord and King, and his name is Jesus. And he loves you, and he wants you to come home to him. Amen.